I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. David Schultz today. Dr. Schultz is a figure well-known to the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians as a contributor and educator over the years and talks to us today about pain pumps. Pumps are an important technology and a useful therapy for very difficult pain conditions. Oftentimes, we feel that we've exhausted many of our options when, in fact, there are other options, and Dr. Schultz will talk about that. It's my distinct honor to spend a few minutes talking to him, uh, discussing the ins and outs of pumps in this contemporary pain era that we live in and the technology and its viability within pain practices. It takes a man of vision, such as Dr. Schultz, to take this technology to the next level. I enjoyed this interview, and I hope you do too. Let's get to it. Uh, I have with me Dr. David Schultz of Minnesota, and uh, he has a really unique practice. He's one of those uh, folks that hung on to pain pumps when a lot of people bailed and is now a major implanter of pumps. But more importantly, he has a system. These uh, pumps require a certain amount of processes. Those processes need to be in place and they need to be adhered to so that the practice thrives. Uh, Dave, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been in this pain clinic business for about 25 years now, almost as long as you have, Hans. So, <laughs> and I've come to realize that pumps are probably the go-to therapy when everything else fails. So over, over the past uh, couple of decades, I've come to take on the most difficult pain patients in the Twin Cities. That's where I'm working in Minneapolis. And I've found that targeted drug delivery with the pain pump is really, really works well for just about any type of pain in the most difficult situations. So I do a lot of implanting, a lot of trialing, and I've really come to love this therapy. I think it's wonderful. It is. I put my first one in in uh, 1994, and I've been up and down with them. I think we had a lot of problems in the beginning figuring out what to put in them. But let's go back and start with the basics. Uh, what's a pain pump? And I mean, why would a patient even want one? It, it sounds like you're putting something in and it sounds like a computer. And who wants to be uh, the bionic person, you know? Sure, I understand. Well, first of all, patients with severe intractable chronic pain are, are candidates. If, you're not, if you don't have severe intractable pain, then no, it's really a last resort option. So most of our patients with pain pumps have failed medication management, and many are on high-dose oral opioids or skin patch opioids when they come to us. We often try neurostimulation, which is an electrical uh, implant neuromodulation system, because it's less drastic than a pump. It doesn't involve any medications. But many patients fail that trial. And when we do a trial of a pump, we place a temporary catheter into the spinal fluid and we inject the medicines that the pump would deliver. And lo and behold, patients are telling us, my pain is gone. And we don't usually hear that with any other therapy. So if I explain why that happens, first of all, if we take opioids by any route of administration, a pill, skin patch, injection, intravenous, all of those routes put opioid into the bloodstream. 
And that drug goes right to the brain and it causes all sorts of mental side effects. Sleepiness, mental clouding. You can have uh, addiction potential because it causes euphoria. If we put that same opioid into the spinal fluid, it's very powerful at very low dose and it doesn't have any mental effects. It binds to the spinal cord opioid receptors. And those were discovered way back in 1979. Um, and we realized that, hey, we can put morphine or other opioids into the spinal fluid at low dose and block pain very powerfully. So once that was understood, then various uh, vendors went about creating uh, delivery systems to deliver opioids to the spinal fluid. And Medtronic was the first. They came up with a pump in the early 1980s. And that pump has um, changed over time. Now it's been, it's evolved. But it's basically, what it does is it delivers opioid through a small catheter uh, into the spinal fluid and it blocks pain very powerfully. And when we implant, so we do the trial, if the trial works really well, then we implant a permanent system. And the, the pump itself is about as big as a hockey puck. So, and it, it's big because it has to hold a couple months worth of medication inside of it. And then that little catheter that's connecting the pump to the spinal fluid, that delivers the medicine to the spine over, over time, very small amounts, 24 seven. And when the pump uh, delivers all the medicine after a couple months or so, then the patient comes into the clinic and we fill that pump through the skin. And you made a, a, a statement about what do we put in pumps? And that's really the most important question because I think pumps sometimes fail because the wrong medicines are used. And many doctors have kind of a misunderstanding of, of how to manage a pain pump. And what we've come to realize is that the medicines that work best are an opioid, like morphine, fentanyl, or hydromorphone are the three that we typically use. And we mix that opioid with a local anesthetic. And I think that the most important medicine is the local anesthetic, and it's bupivacaine. So if we think about bupivacaine, if I wanted to do a spinal anesthetic for knee surgery or abdominal surgery, I could inject 10 milligrams of bupivacaine into the spinal fluid and we could operate on the patient with no pain. That's called surgical anesthesia. Now the pump can deliver that same drug to the spinal fluid, um, but we, to block pain fibers, which are very small, delicate fibers, it's easy to block those at low doses of bupivacaine so that we don't have to give these big doses that create surgical anesthesia. We can block pain fibers selectively at low dose and for that, for that reason, we can have patients who have great pain relief and they still can walk and stand and drive a car and, and function normally because the, the local anesthetic is not blocking all of that sensory motor. Uh, so um, what it comes down to is it's a local uh, anesthetic at a lower concentration that is easier to manage. And you can walk around without any motor deficit, without any trouble walking, uh, trouble with uh, orthostatic hypotension, any of these uh, other potential concerns we would have. Basically, what you're doing is you're putting drugs in to the best capacity to block sensory pain. We're not trying to block the other side of the world. That's motor. And so here's our challenge, okay? We've got opioids that work one way. 
and we have local anesthetics that work another way. So how do we balance that? What are you going to do? Because we got to pick, pick the right drugs for the right moment for the right patient. Right. And pain pump medications are basically compounded, uh, tailor-made for the specific patient. But most implanters in the U.S. use a combination of local anesthetic and opioid. Our, our practice is to use fentanyl as the opioid and glupivacaine as the local anesthetic. And we balance the two. And those two medicines are synergistic. Like you said, the local anesthetic is blocking nerve conduction, which is one pain pathway. The opioid is binding to spinal cord pain receptors, which is a completely different pain pathway. And the two drugs together are very powerful because they're hitting the pain processing from two different angles. Right. And fentanyl, they just... Each of those medicines by, by combining them. Yeah, explain why fentanyl over morphine. I think that's important. Well, I think fentanyl, morphine, and hydromorphone are, are all acceptable. Morphine is very water-soluble, so it tends to spread up and down in the spinal fluid more than fentanyl, which stays very uh, close to where it's dis, uh, delivered. So our practice is to put the catheter tip in the spine at the level of maximum pain. So if someone has neck pain, for instance, we might place a catheter at in the middle of the cervical spinal fluid. If it's low back pain, we might put it in the lower thoracic region. If we're using fentanyl, that fentanyl will be very powerful at that region, but not really affect other parts of the body. Morphine will spread up and down more. So if someone has neck pain and low back pain, we might choose morphine as the medicine because it distributes more fully along the uh, spinal cord. Yeah, right. Um, I want to get to some questions I have because what, when it comes right down to efficiency of pumps, you're right. We, we got we to gotta pick the targeted technology for the type of pain and type, type of diagnosis. But what patients want to know is, okay, how come I just can't take pills or, or use a patch and I got to have this thing implanted. What do you mean? How are you going to put it in? Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. And that's a very common question. And what we tell patients is, well, you're taking these, these pills and they're going to your brain and you might feel okay. But if you got into a car accident, the plaintiff's attorney might say you're impaired. It's like you're drunk driving. You're taking narcotics and you're driving a car. Same with working or operating machinery or just making decisions. Those drugs are affecting your brain in a major way. And um, addiction is also triggered by these oral opioids in a certain group of patients. With spinal opiates, none of that really takes place. We're putting the drugs selectively onto the spinal cord and we're keeping them out of the brain. And that's really the beauty of the pain pump. It's a, it's a completely different and unique way of delivering opiates to the spinal cord, not the brain. And you ask a little bit about the logistics of the pump. Well, the pump is three things. It's a pump to deliver medicine 24 seven. It's a reservoir that holds a few months worth of medication inside of it. And it's a computer that we can program to deliver that medicine any way that the patient wants. So for instance, most of our patients want a low dose continuous infusion that runs in the background 24 seven. Most of the time, that's all they need. They're comfortable with that. If their pain is out of control, it flares up for some reason, or let's say they're going to go do something strenuous and they know it's going to cause pain. They can give themselves an extra dose with an external remote control device called a patient therapy monitor, 
manager. So it's very much like a PCA in the hospital. If you have surgery, uh, you'll have an IV PCA where you push a button, you get a dose of medicine, it takes your pain away. The pump is the same, same way. We can give the patient as much or as, as little control as they want with this computerized platform. So, okay, let's go through the logistics here. You mentioned that you do a trial. Well, I, I know about trial spinal cord stimulators. There's another type of trial that you would do with intrathecal administration of drugs. And then you would go to the next process of deciding, is it a worthwhile therapy or not? How do you make that decision? Really, the patient makes a decision. And what we found is that most of the patients who, who are considering pumps have tried everything and Sometimes for many years, they've just had miserable pain. Nothing has really helped them. They might have had multiple surgeries. Uh, they might even have a neurostimulator, and they just say it doesn't really help very much. We do the test dose of a pump of a pump trial where we're actually injecting the medicine that the pump would deliver, and patients usually tell us, my pain is gone, and I've never felt this good before. My pain is gone. And if you think about why that is, that really is the bupivacaine. So if we were going to, you know, we're putting bupivacaine and fentanyl in there, um, but that bupivacaine is blocking pain, just like for surgical anesthesia. And it's very dramatic. And patients are saying, well, this is the therapy that I need. The beauty of a trial is it really demonstrates to the patient what they're going to experience when they have an implanted pump. So if we think about stimulator trials, about 50% of patients typically fail that. They say, didn't really help much. Pump trials in our hands, about 95% of patients say, wow, that's amazing. My pain is gone. Yeah, you know, I, I can see this. My experience is just the old way. We pick a single agent like morphine, put like half milligram in, give them some time. And in the very beginning, we thought, oh my gosh, morphine's going to migrate. We got to watch them for 24 hours in the hospital. You don't do that anymore, do you? That's one of the reasons we use fentanyl, because it doesn't migrate like that. We, morphine is unique in that it has what we call delayed respiratory depression in some patients. So if we inject a dose, they might get an immediate response within 30 to 60 minutes. And then six or 12 hours later, they might have a secondary response because that medicine is going up to the um, upper part of the central nervous system and can affect respiration. Fentanyl doesn't do that. It's pretty much it, it works immediately and, and then it's gone, you know, over a period of hours. Take us and, through the next step then, Dave. You've got somebody you like the response with. They like the response. It's symbiotic. You both say, okay, let's do this. Where do we go from here and how does it work? Okay, so there's a whole background of insurance authorization, but we usually get that before we do the trial. So once the trial is done, then we submit the the positive trial results to the insurer. The insurer says, yep, you're approved. You can go ahead. Then we schedule surgery. And we typically do this surgery as an outpatient in our surgery center. It can also be done in a hospital operating room. Um, in my hands, it's about 30 minutes skin to skin to implant a pump. And it's because I'm you know, experienced and I've done it many times. But even if it takes an hour, it's a relatively minor surgical procedure. And there are two incisions. One at the pump pocket, and that can be either in the abdomen or more, more um, of what we do is the upper buttock area, the same place that we would put a neural stimulator uh, pulse generator. And those pumps fit well in that location. And then there's another incision at the midline spine where the catheter is 
placed into the spine and anchored. So the patient has two small incisions, pump gets implanted and we turn it on immediately. In the recovery room, we tell the patient pumps running in the background. Now we're gonna give you a bolus. A bolus means a, a, an extra dose. And we, we do that for the patient to give them post-op pain relief. And then we program the pump so that they can give themselves boluses or extra doses uh, right away. And they, take, they go home with their remote control device to be able to control their pain. You're, you're a pain specialist, have been for years. I've just thoroughly enjoyed watching you lecture and watching you grow, being involved in ASIP. And we have, through all this growth and all these years, had ups and downs. And our ups and downs come from not only reimbursement, but industry pressure. And they come from the the logistics of just running a practice. How do you make this stuff successful in your practice? Well, that's a really key question because I think a lot of pump implanters uh, become disillusioned because it is it does take a team. We have uh, what we call the implant team, and it's mostly uh, nurses, and then I'm the, the physician director of that team. But they're on call 24-7. If there's problems, we certainly you know, answer the phone and we get involved as we need to. We find that very rarely do we need to do anything after hours. But if the patient isn't doing well, they come into the clinic, we adjust the dose. If they're having discomfort at the pocket site, we'll deal with that. There's all sorts of little things that can, you know, happen with pain pumps and we manage those in the clinic. And if it's just one doctor and no team, then that doctor kind of gets overwhelmed and they think, boy, this is too much work. Uh, I can't do it myself, so I'm not going to do it at all. Yeah, a team, that's uh, that's a key thing. It, it, so it's a commonality as opposed to having a nurse, epidural, recovery, out the door. It's a team that is responsible to the patient's well-being because this is an implantable device. Unlike a stimulator, this is medications 24-7. And I would imagine it takes some fine-tuning. What's the uh, post-op course usually like? Yeah, so as I said, most of the patients that we implant pumps have, are already on uh, fairly high doses of oral opioids. And we try to get them down to about half of their usual dose before we implant or before we even do a trial. And that's sometimes possible, and sometimes patients just can't do it. They just tell us, I can't stop taking these meds because my pain is too much out of control. So anyway, we move ahead, we trial the pump, we implant it. As soon as that pump is implanted, it's turned on. And then over a period of weeks and sometimes even months, we fine tune the dose. While we're, and as we ramp up the pump uh, medication, we ramp down the oral or skin patch opioids. So our typical patient might take 30, 60, 90 days to convert from high-dose oral opioids over to pump opioids. And it's not a race. You know, we just tell the patient, you know, this is a long-term therapy, and we're going to give you the medicines in your spine rather than in your brain. And that's going to be a, a process of tapering your oral narcotics. I'm sure a lot of art and not necessarily a, a cookbook approach to, to moving forward with the patient. But it, it, you know, it is, and many patients are super anxious about that. But... You know, when we really get down to it, most people don't want to be on narcotics. It's just not a great way to live. No, you're, you're, you might feel okay, but you're not thinking the way you would, would if you weren't on narcotics. 
where they really do affect your brain. And when we, when people kind of clear up after their pump is implanted and they're off of their narcotics, they're very thankful that we gave them, uh, gave them a great alternative. You know, also there may be some familiarity out there for the pump's other use, and that's for spasticity. Do you do much uh, with that? Well, that's um, that's the other use for a pump, as you said. And, and those patients are very, they have specialized needs. So typically the doctors who specialize with, in spasticity are physical medicine and rehab doctors. And they use strictly baclofen in the pump, nothing else. And most of those patients are not chronic pain patients. Now, in our population, we have some patients with chronic pain who also have severe muscle spasm. So we will add baclofen as a third drug in some of these infusions. And it just depends on what the patient needs. In some of our pumps, we actually have four drugs in there. A local anesthetic, two opioids, and baclofen. Or we can add clonidine. So there's a lot of mixing and matching depending on what the patient needs. And if you think about the pump itself, it's really just a delivery system. The doctor and the, the implant team decide which medicines to put in there, and then we, we work with the patient to fine-tune that. Do you have choices of pumps, different companies that would have either spin one way or the other? Sure. There are two main ben- vendors of pumps. Um, Medtronic was the original pump creator, and they've been around the longest, and their pump has evolved over the past 30 years. Flowonics, I believe they came about in somewhere around 2005, 2010, and they took a pump that was created by a different manufacturer, took it over, fine-tuned it, and now there are two excellent pumps in the market, Flowonics and Medtronic. Each pump has a, has a, a set of advantages and disadvantages. N- neither of these devices is perfect. You know, they have some failure rate, as any mechanical system will. With Medtronic, uh, one of the problems with that pump is motor stall, and that's typically happening after five years. We think it's more common if the drugs are off-label, which most with any which which any combination of medicines is off-label. The only, by the way, the only on-label drugs uh, for pain pumps are are morphine, preservative-free as a single therapy, and pre-alt, which is a snail venom toxin. So that's a whole different discussion about what is off-label and on-label. What does it mean? But the bottom line is. Physicians commonly use drugs off-label for, for all sorts of indications in medication, I mean in uh, medicine. And using off-label drugs is perfectly acceptable and it's done for most pain pumps. Yeah, and especially in pain, we use a lot of adjunctive therapy off-label. I've heard up to 50% of meds we use are off-label. It shouldn't be discouraged. It should be encouraged to minimize escalation of controlled substances in any arena. I would guess that you would continue the baclofens or the gabapentinoids. You would continue uh, other meds as adjuncts, or do you get to get rid of those too? Yeah, it really depends on how the patient feels. And if they, and we try to get rid of the, as many pills as we can, patients don't like to take pills. Pump is much more convenient because it's just constantly running in the background and you don't really have to think about it. So often we can get people off of, opioids, and sometimes off of gabapentin and other types of pain medications. Now, I've heard about some downsides with uh, some problems with the catheter, and you can speak to that, but where are we at with that? And some of the other problems I've also heard with the mechanical systems, particularly the ones that utilize battery power, 
Netronic, for example, battery goes and wears down just like any battery or um, uses other power to deliver the drug. Can you talk about that? Sure. So both pumps have a battery and the battery life for a Medtronic pump is about somewhere between five and seven years. We replaced Medtronic pumps after five or six years because the risk of motor stall is higher at the, at the end of the pump's life. The Flonix battery lasts 10 years, so it's a longer battery life. The, the technical issue with the Flonix pump is that it has an MRI problem. So if you have a Flonix pump and you, you need to have an MRI, you have to have the drug taken out of that pump get the MRI and then go back to the clinic and have the drug put back in, which is quite a hassle for some patients, especially if they're getting frequent MRIs. So that's you know the downside of the Flonix pump. But thinking about the other part of the technology, it is the catheter. And catheters are the most likely component of the system to break down. So if you think about the spine, it's a very dynamic, movable structure. We're constantly bending, twisting, and that catheter is taking quite a beating as the bones of the spine are moving on each other. And sometimes the catheter can break, it can kink, or it can even be clogged up with a precipitated medication. Now, it's not necessarily a dangerous issue, it's just that the therapy will stop and the patient can go through withdrawal. And we, we, when that happens, we simply give patients their pills back, which will stop the withdrawal, so we put them back on opioids, and then we um, fix the problem with the catheter. Sometimes we have to replace it. Sometimes we have to go in there and just uh, fix the kink of the catheter. It just depends on what the problem is. What do you do about surgery procedures? Can they have epidurals, or what about going to the operating room? How do you manage that? Sure, the pump doesn't really take anything away, and I tell patients that you know this is another tool in the toolbox. Just because you have a pump doesn't mean you couldn't take pills. You can certainly take them. You can have surgery and anesthesia just the way you would if you didn't have a pump. Um, sometimes the surgeons are a little bit worried that if the patient has a pump and I'm not, I don't know what to do with post-op pain management. So that's when our team gets involved and we say to the surgeon, once you're done with your surgery, you've had a week or so of post-op pain meds, just send them back, we'll manage the rest of that pain. And then we typically, again, turn the pump up as needed and we get the patient back off of the opioids. I imagine they're at a pretty much a steady state so they don't really have the pump turned off or do you turn it off? Because that's a question mark that comes up. No, we just tell the, most of the surgeons just leave that run in the background. The patients, like you said, at a, at a steady state. They're used to it. Their body's used to it. It's not going to cause any problems. And then they can still, they'll still have post-op pain. So if you have a, a gallbladder surgery and you have a pump, you're still going to have incisional pain from that gallbladder and you'll take Percocet or whatever for post-op pain, just like any, anyone else would. Um, so it really doesn't come into play as far as uh, causing problems there. What do the ER people do when somebody shows up with a pump? How, how does that phone call come through? <laughs> Well, doctors tend to misunderstand pumps. They, many doctors really don't know what a pump is or what it does, and they think it's a pump delivering intravenous opioids. We get that statement sometimes from physicians who don't quite understand it. But um, it's interesting that when a patient shows up with any problem and they have a pain pump, the first thing many doctors do is blame the pump for the problem. <laughs> So we have to get involved and we explain, no, the pump isn't causing this. This is some other issue. 
Now, occasionally the pump is causing problems, and it's typically that the catheter is broken and the therapy is stopped and the patient's in withdrawal, and that's a simple problem. What we don't see is the pump giving too much medication. I mean, unless it's misprogrammed or misfilled, the overdose risk is pretty much zero. It's not, there's never, never been a case in my uh, memory where a pump gave too much medication uh, for some malfunction. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, so the daily routine uh, for a patient with a pump, how do you advise them? No, you can't go chop wood or you can't go ski or can you? Or what are their limitations? Oh, sure. You can do uh, all of the normal physical activities, sports and whatever. But this is after your incisions have healed and your, you know, your, your wounds are healed just like any surgery. Oh, yeah, wound. sure, of course. But um, I think there may be some restrictions on diving because of the pressure. I'd have to ask Medtronic tech support about that. But um, you can fly in an airplane. You can go about your normal business. You can go horseback riding. And that's really what we want. We want people to get back into life. That's why we're implanting this amazing device. And people will carry a card, won't they? So they go through security and that sort of thing. Is that correct? Yes. And I think they have a bracelet, actually. This, okay. is, um, this is a Medtronic Rolex pump. So, Dave, it sounds like they're not, these pumps are not readily available throughout the pain community or for pain patients just to ask for this in a general sense. How do you find out more about this if you're very interested or say you're a healthcare provider and you're kind of at the end of the therapeutic um, cascade, we got to get something more for this person. Well, you're right. You know, the, if we think about pain doctors and both you and I do teach courses to pain doctors. And when I'm teaching, I, I ask the audience, how many patients, how many uh, doctors out there uh, implant neurostimulators? And just about everybody raises their hand. And I ask how many out there implant pain pumps? And there's a few hands, but not many. And the perception among pain docs is it's too much work. It's too much of a hassle. I just don't want to deal with it. Um, so you can't find an implanting pain pump physician on every street corner. There, there's you know, few and far between. And I think the best thing to do if you're a patient who, who's at your end, end of your rope, you want to try a pain pump, is call the vendor, Medtronic or Flowonics, or go online and query them. Where do I find a doctor who implants pain pumps? And, and the vendors know because just as it's a team approach in our clinic, it's a team approach with the vendor of the technology too. So we're very close to both Flowonics and Medtronic, and we're interacting with their reps and their company's tech, tech support all the time. And so if some patient were to call in, in the Minnesota area and say, where do I get a pain pump? Medtronic or Flonix would probably say, well, Dr. Schultz implants, and there's a couple other doctors in town then too. So they would give the names and then the patient could go on the web and look at our practices and show up for an evaluation. Yeah. And I've been asked this, this, this comes my way a lot. Well, I don't just have low back pain. Now when I hear those pumps only cover certain regions. I have widespread pain. Let's, let's just take the vignette to cancer with Met, or let's take that vignette to post-laminectomy syndrome where it's going to be basically waist down. I mean, we have two different kinds of pain. Uh, how do you 
how do you say what you need to say to that patient? Well, widespread pain, we do this, or post-LAM, we do that. Sure. And if we think about the two types of neuromodulation, you know, the neurostimulators, spinal cord stimulators versus targeted drug, drug delivery pain pumps, the stimulators are very region specific. So if you have lower body pain, uh, back and legs, you're going to get a stimulator that's going to cover the lower body, not the upper body. If you have neck and arm pain, you might get a stimulator that covers your neck and arm, but it's not going to help your low, your low back and legs. Now, a pump is different because if you think about it, the spinal fluid where that drug is going is like a river. So it's created in the brain and it circulates all the way down to the tailbone and back up again uh, during a, a typical day. And so that medicine is floating and flowing within the spinal fluid and, and it is distributed up and down the spinal cord much more than uh, the electricity from a stimulator, which is very site specific. And we can uh, improve that uh, distribution of, a pain, of the pain pump medications by choosing the right medicines that tend to migrate more. And that's when morphine, so if somebody has widespread pain, we typically use morphine rather than fentanyl. And we, yeah. we put the catheter at the main, the site of the worst pain, but we, you know, let's say that's in the neck. And then we infuse the medicine there. That medicine will also affect the low back and legs. It won't be quite as powerful in the low back and legs, but it will certainly do a lot to alleviate pain there. And there was a, a lot of hope early on with uh, cancer pain. I think uh, pumps won out over most technology and meds because of their potency and their adjustability well-tolerated, and uh, I don't think the side effects were as dramatic, were they? No, I think, you know, for cancer pain, a, a neurostimulator is probably not going to be helpful. It's just too, you know, and we're talking about terminal cancer where there's metastatic disease and the patient is really has severe pain. If you think about the types of pain that you see in cancer, there's there, there are two types of pain in the pain clinic, neuropathic and nociceptive. And cancer pain is a combination of both of those types of pain. So neurostimulators are, they're good for region-specific neuropathic pain. That, that's when the nerves are damaged and they're, that's what neuropathic pain is. That works, stimulators work well for that. But when, with cancer, there's neuropathic pain and there's also nociceptive pain and they're happening at the same time. So uh, pump medicines will block any type of pain, whether it's from nerves or not. And that's why we use it in cancer. And it's in, with, can, with terminal cancer, we can also use drugs like ketamine in the pump, which we wouldn't use for chronic benign pain because ketamine has some uh, potential for neuro, neurotoxicity if it's infused for years into the spinal fluid. But it's very powerful for cancer and, and we use it a lot. And um, Dr. Lisa Stearns, who has, I'm sure was a friend of yours and mine, she passed away recently, but she was probably the world's authority on cancer pain management with pain pumps. And she was a pioneer in that area. And she had a very large following of patients and doctors who use pumps for cancer pain. Dave, I want to thank you. And this has been a, a great interview. I'm sure we'll have you back on. Any parting thoughts? No, I'm just, I'm really trying to you know, it's kind of the twilight of my career. I've been doing this for, like I said, 25 years. I'm trying to get the message out to pain doctors. Think about targeted drug delivery with pain pumps. It's the best therapy. 
uh, for the worst pain. And I'm trying to get more doctors to be interested in it. So I hope that within the next 5, 10, 15 years, pumps will become much more uh, prevalent and available. Well, thanks again. And uh, we will carry the flag for you. How do they get in touch with you? Um, we're on the web at uh, Neura Pain Clinic, N-U-R-A, and we're in the Twin Cities area. So we're happy to talk to patients. And I'm actually happy to talk to patients on the phone from any part of the country about targeted drug delivery. It's awesome, Dave. Okay, thanks again. And uh, I guess we'll talk to you soon. Okay, Dr. Hansen, very nice to talk with you and thanks for the opportunity. You just heard from one of the gentlemen of pain medicine. It's been my privilege to grow along the side of Dr. Schultz over these years. And he states he's in the twilight of his career, but I don't think so. He'll remain a leader uh, with technology and the importance of some of these therapies that uh, don't always find the mainstream, but have a certain niche and a necessary niche for the best outcome, quality of life, and restorative function that our patients need. So thank you again, Dave, and I hope to have you again.